We'll turn to 1 John. I'll very quickly I'll bring you up to date to where we are if you've not been here for the study. This is a letter written by John the Apostle, though it doesn't say that in the letter, but that's what church history tells us. It's written for a community around Asia, probably around Ephesus towards the end of the first century. After this leader of the church is no longer with them, then some false teachers within the church, some of them have gone out of the church, but what they are teaching is something like this. The crucifixion of Jesus is not what saves you. It's not the blood of Jesus and belief. What saves you is having the right knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. This is called Gnosticism. So then there's some mysterious knowledge, which, of course, the false teachers say they themselves know the knowledge. And so this thing about the crucifixion and resurrection is not really all that important because the Gnostics teach really that the body is bad and the spirit is good, and therefore you need to have a certain knowledge to be saved. In fact, they were so certain that the spirit of the Christ could not be connected to a crucified Jesus that what they taught was something like this. At the baptism of Jesus, when the dove descends or the spirit d descends like a dove, that at that moment, the, the Christ spirit enters in this rabbi Jesus. But sometime before the crucifixion, because the Christ spirit would not be involved in something like that, material, fleshy, that the Christ spirit leaves Rabbi Jesus, and therefore the crucifixion resurrection is not the center of their theology. The center of their theology is knowing this mysterious knowledge in order to be saved. Everybody following me? So when John writes this letter to this church, which has these beginning of Gnosticism, then he writes to them to warn them against such false teaching. Well, let's pick up in chapter 2. In the end of chapter 1, he's told them that God is light. Look at verse 5. That's why our duet was perfect tonight. Look at verse 5. The end of verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That duet was uh, exactly uh, what we needed tonight. If you say you have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In fact, he tells us, verse 9, if we confess our sins... And he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, in verse 7, he says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, cleanses us from all sins. So John, the apostle, leads them back to crucifixion, resurrection, theology. It is the blood of Jesus that pays for our sins. We must confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, then we are forgiven. Well, let's begin in chapter 2. My little children... Now, whenever he uses, and this is going to be important in a minute, whenever he uses the, the phrase, my little children, he's talking to the whole church, not to the children in the church. Uh, in a minute, he's going to divide it, the church into the older and the younger. But when he says children, he's the spiritual father of the church. And so they're all his little children. That shows you the kind of authority he exercises over them. He's not being demeaning, but he sees them as his spiritual children. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. We can't perpetually walk in sin. And claim that we're his. But if we do sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. And he himself is the payment for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, 
but he has died for the whole world. Look at that. He died for the whole world. That's important for the world will play a role here. It reminds us of John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is that beginning. For God so loved the world. So he died for the whole world. And yet world's not a, a good term, but it is lost world for which Jesus has died. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now last week I showed you throughout this book and places in the gospel of John where the, the evidence that one is a follower of Christ is obedience. And I said we have some contemporary Gnostics today who really teach, well, let's go to another seminar, another teacher. They've got a code to Scripture. They've got a mystery to Scripture. We need to unlock those things. Well, we won't do anything but be obedient to the commandments. So if we can find a, a mysterious knowledge, if we can find a new teacher, if we can find a new seminar, if we can find someone decoding the secrets of the Bible, that sounds a whole lot better than just obeying the commandments, doesn't it? Well, the evidence is not in having special knowledge, but rather evidence of following Jesus is keeping the commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So obedience, that's where we left off last week, chapter 2, 1 through 7. Now we come to the love of the brothers. Verses 7 through 11, the love of the brothers. Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. But an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning, an old commandment, is the word which you have heard. Now, this new commandment is that we ought to love one another. Now, back in his gospel in John 13 and verse 34, we read, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, the new commandment I'm giving you is that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, if what? If you love one another. We can tell that you're a follower of Jesus, if, by the way, the disciples love and care for each other. Now, turn over just one page to 2 John. If you went over, well, maybe it's two pages. If you go over to 2 John, it's a very, very brief book. But in 2 John, my pages are glued together. I may not get to 2 John, verse 5. Look at this. Uh, there's a page in there. I know that there is, but I may not get there. Well, this, I'm glad this isn't Sunday morning with the TV camera rolling. Isn't that a good thing? But there are radio. There he goes. Look at there. Ah, I knew it was there. All right, 2 John, verse 5. And now I ask you, lady. Lady is what? The church. Now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had at the beginning, that we love one another. Now with bravery, I'm going to try to turn back uh, to 1 John chapter 2. So there in the John's gospel, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. You need to love each other. And the world will know that you're mine by the way that you love one another. And then in 
second letter, second John, he says, it's not a new commandment. I'm telling you to love each other. Well, now you got to remember from the time Jesus says it, uh, around in the, in the late 20s, 30s, now we're all the way to the end of the century. We've got a, a lot of years, decades of this commandment. So in some sense, it is no longer a new commandment. It is one that Jesus has given already. Well, what he's saying to them is this. In the new sphere of the love of God and the light of Jesus, we ought to love one another in a way that we've never been able to love each other before. Because of the coming of the new age of the Christ, we can love each other in a way that we could not previously have loved each other. Because the darkness of the old age in which men could not love freely like Christ loves has passed, and now we can really love. Could you really know what love fully is before the crucifixion of Christ? Isn't that the ultimate definition of love? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Could humanity really understand love until we saw a God loving us this much? Well, the commandment is now in this new sphere, we can love each other in a new way. The commandment Jesus had given decades earlier that they should love one another. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness till now. John's opponents... Chapter 1, verse 6, claim to be in the light. But if you claim to be in the light and yet you hate your brother, then the reality is you're not walking in the light at all. You are still in darkness. Well, look what he says in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. To stumble means to fall into apostasy, to fall into sin. The person who loves his brother will not succumb to the temptations because he has the principles of right and will not be deflected by the attractions of self-centered existence. Now you think about that. If you really loved your neighbor as you love yourself, how much sin wouldn't happen in your life? If you thought as much of others as you thought of yourself, could you have the sin of pride? No. If you love the brothers, you won't have pride. If you really loved your neighbor like you love yourself, would you steal from your neighbor? No. Would you commit adultery with your brother's wife if you really loved your brother? The answer is, of course, no. So loving others allows us to get away from the temptation. So part of the key to walking in the light, as he is in the light, is to love our brother in such a way as we're not tempted to sin because we are not living a self-centered existence. In fact, when we walk in love and in light, we see the temptation and we can say, because I love him, because I love her, the answer is no. So if we love our brother, we're not tempted to sin. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who hates his brother is blind, and he walks in darkness. In verses 12 through 14, the next major section, true relationship to God comes in Christ. True relationship to God comes in Christ, 12 through 14. Now, whenever I say children, or whenever John says children, I want you to think the whole church. Whenever I say men... 
or older men, you think about the older folks in the church. Whenever we say young men, you think about the younger people in the church. It's the only way to read this and make any sense of it. But look at, look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children. Well, how do I know little children doesn't mean uh, the preschoolers and the children of the church? Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. What's he called the whole church already? My little children. So when we see little children down here, we know that's his code language for all the church, which are his spiritual children. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Look back up at chapter 1, verse 9. What have they done? They have confessed their sins, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the center of Christian theology, at the center of salvation, is the idea that if we confess our sins, we are forgiven. Now, if we ever really believe that, it would change the way that we live. If you really believe that Christ had died for your sins, and if you really believe that once you confessed your sins, they were paid for on the cross, and you were free from those sins, wouldn't you live with a sense of freedom? Isn't that the whole purpose that Christ has come to free us, to liberate us from the power of sin and death? And that liberation comes through the crucifixion. He's already paid the price and we are set free. At the center of any good Christian theology is payment on the cross, confession of sin and forgiveness and freedom from sin and death. So that's what he's telling them here in verse 12. I'm, uh, he says, I'm writing to you, my little children, because your sins are forgiven you. If you could accept that statement tonight, it'd change your life forever. Listen to it. John says, your sins are forgiven you. If you believe that, you'll live differently tomorrow. I am free from my sins. Satan loves to remind us of our old sins, doesn't he? God forgets them. I will remember their sins no more, says Yahweh. But the devil remembers every sin you ever committed. He brings them to your mind and reminds you you're not any good and you're not free in Christ because you did this. He can give you the time, the place, and the date. And you need to remind him that both you and God have already forgotten. Your sins have been forgiven you because of who you are. No, look at the end of verse 11. Not because of who you are, you have confessed, but your sins are forgiven because of the name of Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, I'm writing to you little children. That's what he said in, in verse 12. Now, I'm writing to you fathers. Now, think of the older folk in the church. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Now, Remember back to John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You remember that's the way the gospel of John begins, in the beginning. Genesis begins what? In the beginning. John reflects Genesis, and both of those are reflected here in 1 John chapter 2. Fathers, you know him who's from the beginning. Jesus is from the beginning just like God. I'm writing to you young men. Now, see the difference? Children is everybody. Older or fathers, the older folks in church. Young men are the younger folks in the church because you've overcome the evil one. I've written to you children. Now, back to everybody. I'm writing to you children because you know the Father. 
Now back to the older folks. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's been from the beginning. I've written to you young men. Now back to the younger folks because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he says to the whole church, your sins are forgiven you because of what Jesus has done. Older folks, you have known the one, you've known the Jesus that's from the very beginning. And young men, you'll face a lot of temptation, but you have overcome the one who is evil. In verses 15 through 17, this section is an appraisal of the world. Now, we already learned earlier that he died for the world. And now look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He died for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Reminds us again of John 3, 16. But the world is not a good thing. The world is a sinful thing, usually in Scripture. Verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. Now, I told you you would wake up differently tomorrow if you felt like your sins were truly forgiven. You'll wake up equally different tomorrow if you don't love the things of the world. It will change who you are. It will change how you handle your money. It will change everything about how you treat the world and the material things that are passing away. Do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We, the followers of Jesus, are the ones who are called to be citizens of a different kingdom. And we're the ones that realize this world is passing. That everything that we buy or have will either rust or rot or be moth-eaten, destroyed, bent, warped. It'll all be destroyed. But the love of the Father lasts forever. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh... Now, here he's probably talking about sensuality here, the lust of the flesh. Another thing that's wrong with the world is the lust of the eyes. Now, that's probably materialism. That is probably greed. So, sensuality first. Here's the things wrong with the world. Sensuality outside of marriage. And then the next thing he gives us is this idea of greed. So, it is lust and it is greed here. And then pride, the pride of life. Yours might say the pride of possessions, the word actually here is life. The pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Well, if you look at all the books, all the writings of John, we, we learn these things about the world. First of all, the world is under the control of the evil one. The world is under the control of the evil one. Secondly, we learn it lies in darkness and sin. The world is under the control of the evil, evil one, and therefore it lies in darkness and sin. And he tells us, therefore, the world is under divine judgment. But at the same time, the world is the object of God's love and God's redemption. The world's in the wrong sphere. What you really have is a theology of two spheres throughout this first letter from John. And on this side, you have the sphere of the world, which is broken. It is a sphere of darkness. It is a sphere of death. As Christ has died for you and there's resurrection, we move into the new age, which is a sphere of light, a sphere of everlasting eternal life, you see, and moving away from the world and into the kingdom of God. 
Christ is born in this sphere, born under law, born of a woman, and through his crucifixion and resurrection, he moves himself and all of us to this second sphere. If you'll keep that sphere theology in your mind when you read Paul or John, it will change the way you read it. You realize what's going on. He's talking about the old sphere. Now he's talking about the new sphere. And yes, we're kind of we're living like this, right? We got one foot in the canoe and one foot on the pier, and it's not a very fun boat ride, is it? We're kind of caught between the two spheres. Well, he's calling them to walk into the sphere of the life. The world is passing away. Verse 17, the world doesn't last forever, also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God abides forever forever. The love of the world is the appetite for pleasure that God's people must avoid. James, or brother Jesus, puts this this way in James 4, 4. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You can't have both. Some of us would like to have a relationship both with this sphere, the kingdom of God, and yet we kind of enjoy this sphere enough that we don't really want to lose total touch, right? And so we find ourselves listening to the words of James, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Well, the next section, the last one we'll cover tonight, about 10 minutes, is the warning against the Antichrist. Well, I'm going to tell you something you probably don't know tonight. And that is the word Antichrist is only used in John's letters. Nowhere else in the New Testament. So if someone quotes a passage of Scripture and you're playing the the Bible game and it has the word Antichrist in it, you say it's one of John's letters. Uh, don't, Don't say it's Revelation. Don't go there. Don't say it's Daniel. You say it's one of the epistles of John. You see, the idea exists other places, but the word Antichrist only exists here uh, in the epistles of John. Well, he begins in verse 18. Children, and remember that's the whole church. Children, and whenever he says children, we kind of change topics. You notice that? Another thing I'm going to tell you, children, let me tell you something else. It is the last hour. Well, now this is written, you know, at the end of the first century, probably in the 90s. How can it be now? 2,000 years later, that we're still calling it the last hour. For the church, the last hour is everything between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. The last hour is everything between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have risen. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Jesus had said that there would be many false Christs. He didn't say antichrist. He said there would be false Christs and many false prophets. They were possible. They would, even, they would even confuse or misguide the people of God. And then we have in Paul's writing this ultimate one against Christ, this man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. Put all of that together, and John tells us there is an ultimate one who is not the Christ, but is against the Christ. But there's already many antichrists who are out there in the world. They went out from us. These he's calling the antichrist are those who've left the church. But they weren't really his. 
For if they had been his, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that they might be shown that they are not of us. A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first. Now, you remember that little ditty. I don't know if I can say it again, so you'll have to remember it. A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at first. There is a difference between the true church and the church roles. We all understand that, and that's what he's saying here. They were part of us. They were a follower for a while, but they went out from us. And the fact that they left us and are no longer part of the church shows that they're not really part of the people of God. But you have an anointing with the Holy One. In the Old Testament, what happens when someone's anointed with all the presence of the Spirit? You have anointing with the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now, what were their enemies saying? That you don't know the knowledge, you don't have the mystery, you don't have the secret. He says, no, I'm not written to you because you don't know the truth. Truth is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You already know it. But look at verse 22. Here's how you can tell who his enemy is. Who is the liar? But the one who denies it, Jesus. Now, when you think Jesus, think fleshly rabbi. Who is the liar? But the one who not denies it, earthly rabbi, Jesus Carpenter, is the Christ. Those who are denying that he is the Christ himself, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. The, the one who denies the Father and the Son. These false teachers, part of the church, left because they could not accept a full Christology of a crucified and resurrected Christ. They didn't want a Christ with skin on, which is what John's all about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So they've left the church. And so he said, I'll tell you who a liar is. A liar is the one who denies that the all human Jesus was also the all God Christ. But you have the right knowledge, and that is that he was. Jesus was the Christ. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, that you heard from the beginning abides in you, and you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Well, that's a great verse to remember, isn't it? The promise that God has made to you is forever life. Every time you stand beside a graveside, you remember these words. This is the promise which God himself has made to his people, eternal life. This is the promise that God has made to his people eternal life. That wouldn't mean as much except for his tomb was empty. He has defeated death. And Paul would say just as he was the first fruit that we will surely follow. These things I've written to you Concerning those who are trying to deceive you, they are downplaying the crucifixion. They're downplaying the resurrection. They really don't want the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, to be in a human body. They don't like that. And so they're trying to deceive the church. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things... 
and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. He'll ultimately be an enemy of the Christ called the Antichrist, but already those in the spirit of the Antichrist have left the church. They're teaching against the crucifixion and the resurrection. They're trying to teach you you need some mysterious knowledge. But the reality is to have the eternal life, you must follow the one who was crucified and defeated death itself with his empty tomb, who begins the age of the resurrection. That is the truth. Man, this, this book is short, but you could camp out a long time on any of those verses, couldn't you? How would it change your life tonight if you believed you were forgiven for your sins? The fact you're going to try to remember that tomorrow means Satan's going to remind you of every sin you've ever done that Jesus has already paid for. And when you remember the sins that Jesus has already paid for, you are mocking what God has done for you on the cross. It's not about you. You see, the problem when we remember our sins of old is we're making it about us again. It is an arrogant statement to remember your old sins. It's not about you. It's about the one who died on the cross. You see that? Therefore, it changes our life to know it's not about us. It's about him. It's the one. It's our confession, but really it's through what he has done. John is telling us, how did it change your life if you weren't as comfortable in the world, not enjoying the pleasures of the world? How did it change your life if you were fighting the sensual lust of the eyes and the greed of the hands? How did it change your life? How would it change your life if your theology focused on the Christocentric event of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? It would change your life in that you would keep his commandments. Here's a harder question. How would it change our lives if we really showed our love of the brothers? You know... It's interesting to say, he doesn't say they will know your mind by what you teach. He says they will know you by the fact that you love one another. Are you loving your neighbor in such a way that your neighbor wants to know what you believe and where you go to church? Dr. Moore used to tell a story of a church member here that when her neighbor died, she says, I leave all my money to that woman's church. Didn't, didn't even put the name of First Baptist Church. I leave all my money to that woman's church. What she was saying, what uh, she was saying in her will is this. If that church has made my neighbor live like she lives and be that good to me, I want to support that kind of teaching. You see that? How would it change your life if you lived in such a way that the love of the brethren was a priority to you and not the love of the world. Let us pray. Oh God, these are powerful words tonight that call your people to faith, freedom, and obedience. And when the Antichrist come and tempt us and try to deceive us, may we remind the spirit of evil that we are a child of the King forgiven, set free, walking in the light. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.